0: Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. If you're new, we've been walking through the book of Mark, and we come to a challenging text today, but it is it has a purpose. Jesus here is about six, maybe seven, maybe a little bit more, six, seven months away from the cross. So he he you understand there's the, there's an intensity coming in his ministry, and he's actually here in this passage today, he's pulled away from the crowds and he wants to do some intense teaching with his disciples because Jesus had a mission. And part of that mission was to prepare these men when he would be gone. He wanted to equip them in such a way that as he left this world, That they would start a movement where they would call out people from every tribe, every nation, and that they would make disciples. And ultimately, that part of that mission was they were going to be raised up to make and create the church. Remember, a number of or about a month or so ago, we talked about this exchange with Peter. Says Peter, "I am going to build my church," and and I think we need to remember that today. That is still going on. Jesus is building his church, and he wants us to be used in that process, and that's what disciple-making functionally is all about. Now when I use that word disciple-making, I really think it's this, is that it starts with us coming to love God with all our hearts, our souls, and our minds, but then we get involved in his mission as well. And it's this, is that we look for people to come into our lives where we can help them, those that are far from Jesus. We take them and help them to understand and to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to serve Jesus, to be used in the kingdom where they would turn around and they would grab somebody else and they would walk with them to find Jesus and continue on down. That issue of multiplication is at the heart of every church, and that's where we need to be as well as a body here this morning. But one caveat to that to just remind you, it's never to be done alone. It's always in the context of people and a community called the church. But let me begin by throwing up a question for you, just for reflection. And it's this, do you believe... Then it's your mission in life to influence people so that they would also become influencers with others to know and love God. Do you see yourself as an influencer? And if you answer yes to that, this is at the heart of the mission of the church that Jesus is building. To love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, but the mission to make disciples. And and by the way, if, if you're in middle school or high school here, do you realize this is for you as well? This isn't for just old bald fogies like myself, okay? We need young people to be raised up to make disciples and where they see it as a passion of their own lives. But we come to this text today. And he is shaping their hearts, he's shaping their minds, and he's digging a little bit deeper here even this morning. Look how we begin the passage here we're at today. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. Now i got to remind you here, he's alone with his disciples, he's actually holding... Some kind of a child, they don't know exactly how old, they guess somewhere in the 10 to 11, 12 year old range, but the child was the object lesson here. He's not just talking about young children, he's talking about those that are also more vulnerable, those even adults that would fit into that category where they're spiritually vulnerable to influence of other people. But he begins to push this issue. And you'll notice that I actually have a title on the sermon, if you see on the outline there, as dealing with the S word. Today we got to deal with the issue of sin. Now, it isn't the most popular topic to talk about. And I would say it's not one of my favorite topics to to hit, but when you go through a book, you, you just come to this stuff as well. But in verse 42, there's an application here that I want to push at you this morning to begin with. Number one for your notes, unresolved sin in a disciple's life has the ability to negatively impact other people. Again, his audience is the disciple's. And this would be, again, who it applies to is anybody who claims to be a disciple of Christ. But he's speaking plainly about not causing other people to stumble. And he noticed that, who believe in me. This is really referring to other believers, other followers, and probably young believers in Christ. See, we can assume something here. That as Christians, we can get hooked into sin and we can cause other people to sin as well do you catch where he's pushing his disciples here now i got to point something out here he doesn't name the sin he doesn't point out any particular sin but here's as when we think of where we go at times here's what happens we like to rate sin and we, we put this at the top, and we'll put some other sins at the bottom. And yeah, we're not supposed to do these, but the bottoms, you know what? It's not so much of a problem. And so we put homosexuality or adultery or some some of those sins at the top, and, and then we kind of minimize the ones that are lower. But Jesus doesn't point out any particular sin here in terms of causing somebody to stumble. Matter of fact, let me... Think of the breath of sins. Look at Colossians 3, five. It gives a list here of some of the sins that are out there in terms of the moral action of sin. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now... You must put away away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Now catch this, this isn't an exhaustive list either. If you were to dig in other passages, you'd realize that there's gossip, there's dissension, there's legalism, there's self-righteousness, and the list goes on and on. Now, i got to state one thing that I'm trying to impress on us as a church, that all of these sins, all of them clumped together, rests on the shoulders of the first sin in creation. You go back to Genesis 3, that first sin ultimately is about our autonomy, claiming the right to decide what is okay and what's not okay. It's the reason we rate sins. This one is bad, I conclude. This one is bad. This one is not such, such a bad sin. You understand where that comes from ultimately is our ability to do it. So what do we do? We also... we said, well, this sin is really evil, homosexuality is really evil, but gossip, you know, that's not that bad. That, it really doesn't hurt that many people. Do you see the tension there for us? But it leads to another issue here, this, the way he writes it here, because I think there's a subtle understanding as to the meaning in the text that's important. It implies that we don't live our lives in a vacuum. There's there's an exchange that we have, we're around people, the body of Christ, we're around people. We don't live alone in isolated lives. And, And ultimately then it leads to application number two. Disciples of Christ are to not only be concerned about their own righteousness, but are to be concerned about the righteousness of others within the body of Christ. See, this is a lesson he's, he's impressing upon these disciples here. He says, guys, you impact other people positively and you can actually cause people to stumble and to fall into sin. So as a disciple, it's just not about me and dealing with my sin, fighting for my own personal righteousness. It's actually looking out for other people and it's in their best interest. But it's ultimately we gotta recognize this we are influencers, even as it relates to sin. And unless you want to just go up and live in a deer shack somewhere and avoid everybody, we influence and impact people. We impact people around us. And can I say this as well to if you're younger here? That's you as well. Your peers, the people you go to school with, you impact people. You have a role. And and by the way, parents, if you've ever talked to your children about this issue as to the degree that they influence other people and that they don't live in a vacuum as well, have a conversation over lunch with it. But a side note for others, I want to push one thing here. It's not this idea that we're looking to call out people's sin. Okay, that's not what I'm talking about today. It's recognizing that our unrighteousness or righteousness can impact and influence people. Some of you are parents. Some of you are grandparents. We have to acknowledge our children and our grandchildren are watching us. And the reality is that somebody younger in their faith doesn't even have to be our own kids, but they're watching us in a way where they can use us to justify them moving towards sin. You know what? My dad is unforgiving. So therefore, I have a right to be unforgiving. You know what? My mom gossips. As a kid, you watch that, and you know what parents do. Us parents, we sin. But all of a sudden, the kid is going, somebody is going, they do it. Why can't I? See, we don't live in a vacuum when it comes to our own sins. And whether we like it or not, whether you're young, people are vulnerable in their faith, and we have the ability to influence them negatively. And this is a hard lesson for the disciples, I think. But let me clarify one more piece here. This isn't about coming to a place of perfection in our lives. Okay, this is modeling sometimes what we do when we get stuck in sin. See, it's even that kind of influencing. Do they see us being repentant? That's a positive influence. We're not going to be perfect. Jesus isn't asking for perfection. He's just saying, guys, realize you are a model. You will be modeling in days ahead what and how you deal with sin move toward Christ do we model that with our kids with other people around us but do you, the strength of this issue I don't know if you catch that the analogy of a millstone taking a weight and hanging around someone's neck and then jumping into the sea do you catch the seriousness that Jesus is talking about here when it comes to sin and causing somebody to stumble but it even gets stronger Look at 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And it's better for you to enter the life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eyes cause you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another now i got to point something out if some of you have a different version you might realize that in that writing there was no verse 44 and 46 okay i didn't like them so i got took them out okay no i didn't do that most scholars, the early manuscripts do not have forty-four and or forty-four and forty-six, and it's a continuation of a forty-eight. The same words there, but it's, they really suspect that because there's there's some poetry almost built into this text, and they were trying to give some poetic balance to it. But most, almost everybody agrees that they're not in the early manuscripts. So that's why we don't have it in the ESV here that I'm using this this morning. But I gotta point something out here. Is that in their tradition, I don't think we understand the depth that they have in communicating some of the nuances of scripture, both in the oral tradition and the written word. They, these were gifted men in writing the scriptures. I remember my first hermeneutics class at seminary. You go down and you learn about the different genres of scripture. You go history and poetry and Proverbs. And, and I got to a poetic one time and I, I learned something called step parallelism. If some of you are English teachers, you might know that. And I go, wow, the scriptures, there's, there's things in there like that within the scriptures. But the hyperbole, the exaggeration that's used, the, the incredible breadth of the way they wrote. And it, it's a challenge to us because you go, what do you take literally and what you don't? Because some people look at this passage and go, this is. if you take it literally, you go, okay, what do we do with that? Okay, some of you that sinned, you want to come up and, okay, let, hold your hands out, or one of your hands, do we c- cut that off? And the, the answer is no. Jesus actually is using a form of exaggeration here to drive home a point. And, and let me give an illustration, I think, that maybe pushes this to that extreme, that, that this isn't literal, that Jesus is saying, you cut off your hand, but it goes kind of like this. A married man is working in a big business. And he begins to fall for one of those women at that business. And he realizes one day he he happens to just put his hand on her shoulder. And it lit a fuse in this man. And his mind started going. And knowing that, you know what, this is sin. You know what, I got to deal with it. So he goes home that night and he cuts off both hands because he because he was dwelling on that touch he cuts them both off so he bandages them up and he goes to work the next day he he didn't have to work on a computer okay so so, so recognize that all of a sudden he's there at a station and this woman walks by and he sees her and his mind starts going oh and Ends up moving toward lust, and he because he knows he needs to deal with this sin, he goes home and he plucks both eyes out and he gets a seeing eye dog and he puts patches over his eyes, he's got him on his hands, and he comes back to work that next day and he's there at his cubicle. I think he had this headset thing to do his job, I'm not sure, but but you understand, all of a sudden, he smells a wisp of her perfume. And his mind started going again. Started flowing down a path of moving toward lust. And and he goes, oh no. So he goes home that night and he chops off his nose. And the next day he puts a bandage on his nose and eyes and hands and and he comes to work and he's doing his work and whatever and whatever he's doing. and, And all of a sudden he hears her voice. She comes along and his mind kicks into gear again and he heads home you know what comes next He chops off the ears pokes his drums out and okay you catch the point I'll end at that point okay see Jesus understood something here it wasn't about the hand it wasn't about the eyes Because Jesus had already communicated something about sin a couple chapters earlier that the disciples knew it at least intellectually. The eyes are just the doorway to something different, something more important. Look at Mark chapter 7, verse 18. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Since he enters not his heart, but his stomach, and it is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And then he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a man. It's a sobering principle. See, the reality is that sin starts within the heart, the soul of man. The eyes, the ears are just the doorway. Jesus knew that. And Jesus understands that there is a part, he's telling disciples, there is a part that you guys play in this and it's a lesson for us today. Application number three, here's what he's communicating in this passage. Do whatever it takes to kill sin. Do whatever it takes. And folks, whatever it takes might be painful. just like cutting off your hands. Now, i got to point out a, a caution here. This passage is not a salvation passage. Okay, This is hyperbole here that he's using to deal with the weight of sin that's within our hearts. And he's not saying that we have to be free from sin to enter heaven. But he's saying that we must be fighting the battle against sin and the flesh. Temptation, by the way, isn't sin either, so be careful there. And, and temptation's never going to leave us. And also in this text, again he points out for hell, and here's where i got to point out a nuance to it. When he uses this as a hyperbole, I understand this, two, when you have two feet walking into hell, it's symbolic of something, and that is of the person who has never trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. And Why? It's this, they really don't care about sin. The goal in their lives is not really to deal with their autonomy, their sin, with the issues of their lives. They don't really care about repentance. So why should he worry about two eyes? They go into to, to hell with two eyes, two feet, two hands. They just don't really care. And he's saying disciples care about this stuff. Do you see the lesson where he's drilling down here? I've got to make a statement here. If you have a saving faith, you will care about the sin in your life and in the lives of others. And you realize that there's going to be a cost in dealing with that sin. The world doesn't worry about a cost. See, this is really a metaphoric hyperbole that Jesus is using, and it's shown to the length of what we must do at times to kill sin in our lives. You know, one of the more ugly roles that I've had as a pastor, I often admit this, is there's been a number of times where somebody has come to me and they've admitted their adultery to me. And there's been those times where I've actually offered and they've taken it up and where I go with them and be a part of that that unveiling of of all the sin and the junk that goes with that and my wife has actually had to, has been with me a couple times on those occasions and and it's a it's not a fun thing to do but even one of the instances i remember many years ago a man he got involved with a, a woman at his work And he was moving toward repentance and and understanding what Christ wanted in his life. And it was clear that radical action needed to be taken. And that he, because he worked with her, he needed to leave that job. And that was painful. He was called to give up that role for the sake of dealing with his sin and rebuilding his marriage. Folks, it's painful To go to the length that Jesus is talking about here, the illustration hyperbole to cut off your hand, that's, you feel the strength of that? And understand, it's, think of the broadness of sin, you might need to get rid of your computer, the internet, or your iPhone just to deal with pornography, it's painful, it might be selling your house and downsizing because you are losing the battle against materialism. See, now that's one we don't really want to talk about within the church. We want to ignore that one. But it might be painful. You know what? Breaking up with a boyfriend or girlfriend because you know that they aren't the other person's not walking toward Christ, that is painful. Do you see the extent that he's pushing us here? Kill sin. Do whatever it takes. And oftentimes what it takes, there will be pain involved. But let me point out one more application here. It really doesn't deal with it in the text, but I, but I want to add to it. Uh, application number four. Radically dealing with sin involves replacing our desires with something more meaningful. Meaning Christ. Okay, We don't have to do this alone. This isn't just sheer willpower that we cut it off. And I want to give you a text. I've used it a number of times over the years and it's it's one of those that I come back to over and over again. Hebrews chapter 12. Look what it says here. Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Now that sin that clings so closely, if you've ever caught a big fish and the net has just wrapped itself all over and you recognize how hard it is, it's a very strong word where it's it's taking work and effort to do it, but it's clinging to you. It's all snarled up. It takes work. But but there's more to the text. Look at what it says here. And let us run with endurance. Don't give up working. But the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, throwing off the sin, I got to point this out, won't last. And you'll never really be fully effective until you begin to run to Jesus. Where Jesus begins to become lovely, more attractive than that sin over there. Because if you try to get rid of sin, it'll create a hole. And if you don't fill that hole up with something that's attractive, important, and purposeful, if you just leave the hole, you're going to gravitate back toward sin or something else. We need Jesus to run to Jesus to fill that hole. I don't know if you realize chapter 12. I won't go into it, but chapter 12 is dealing with sin very directly. And matter of fact, in the, in the passage a little farther down, if, if you look at that, and we won't look at it this morning, it talks about the Father loves us so much that he's willing to come and discipline us because he loves us. He'll deal with our sin from a discipline standpoint. He'll send somebody maybe to rebuke, to correct, and then all of a sudden there's some even harder consequences. All purposeful because he loves us. See, even there it emphasized the importance of dealing with sin in our lives. But this isn't again about killing sin and and just stopping there. It's running and following Jesus. Trying to do it on your alone. It won't last. If the vacuum isn't truly filled. Yeah, and it might include some other people, friends and people that really care about you that can make a difference in that area. But as I was pondering this, uh, the realization over the years that some people, they try to get rid of sin, but they want to stay close to the edge. They don't want to run to Jesus, but they kind of like it close to the edge because they're really quite not sure. and, And at the heart of it is a repentance issue. But the truth is that God wants to deal with sin in our lives. He's teaching His disciples about the nature of sin and how complicated it is and how to get rid of it, to kill it. See, Jesus does want to reveal the sin areas of our lives. And I think we ought to be careful to just not think of the big sins. It's what about the love of money? What about the need for security? What about the pleasure that we work for so strongly, success that we want, that we fight for so put all our energy into? What if it's gossip that just makes us feel better? What if it's bitterness? What if it's unforgiveness? He wants to deal with all of those things in our hearts because he knows we model it we model it to our kids, we model it to our grandkids, we model it to people that we are coming in contact on a regular basis. Kill sin. Run to Jesus. But i got to give you just one last piece. Again, it's not in the text here. But do we understand that as we run toward Christ, there is a freedom that he gives us. Not only does he take away the desires There's a freedom to love. A freedom to let go of the past. A freedom to move toward a health that's life-giving. He takes this and He changes us in that. And there's a beauty in that of what He wants to do when He really deals with the sin in our lives. He even takes away the shame. Takes away the shame. One of the Assignments that I'd encourage you to do. If you're struggling in an area as well, no matter what it is, uh, sometime read Psalm 51. Psalm 51, and I'm not going to turn there today. We don't have time. Psalm 51 deals and really gives a snapshot of David in his heart as he was involved with another woman, but he begins to repent. And you see a beauty of of what repentance is. He realizes that he sinned against God. His first sin was against God. It wasn't this, these other people. And I don't know if you remember the song, some um, Psalm fifty one. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. There's a heart of repentance saying, God. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. See, that's what God wants to do in us. And as disciples of Christ, we deal with sin. We deal with letting go and we run to Jesus and let him give us a new joy in our lives. And that's where freedom is found. Let's stand and pray.